perhaps followed, certainly many of you have heard of, uh, the Voyager uh, space probes that have been uh, in space for now uh, 40 years. Uh, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 set out some 40 years ago. Uh, they have individually traveled some 20 billion kilometers in this last 40 years. Uh, Voyager 1 has now left our solar system and is traveling at a speed of 60,000 kilometers an hour into the unknown. And as, uh, as it travels, it is, um, you, you may have heard, not only discovering things about space, but it is sending a message into space for uh, whomever might be listening. Um, and they put a lot of effort into what do we include in this message? If there was somebody, somebody listening, what would, we, what would we want to say and how would we say it? Well, one of the, one of the things that was included in that recording is uh, a piece of music called the Cavatina Movement from Beethoven's Opus 30. It's a, if you've heard it, it's a very sad, haunting piece of music. And it's a piece of music that Beethoven wrote in the margin uh, one word. It was uh, the word Zinsocht in, uh, in German. Uh, I, will, I will confirm my pronunciation with Gerhard afterwards. But it's a word that gets translated in English often as longing or yearning or craving, that, that kind of thing. And uh, a woman by the name of Annie Druyan, Druyan was the creative di director on this project that, was coming to, that put together, what do we say? If we're going to speak into space... Uh, in a way that, uh, that we've never been able to do before, what are we going to communicate? Uh, she, she described some of the thought process that went into that. She said, she included this song to communicate the sense of yearning or longing that we all feel. In her mind, there's a yearning or a craving that is fundamental to the human existence. We are searching for something and we are yearning after something, she felt. And wanted to, wanted to, it, to as a, an expression of who we are as humans, this is what she wanted to communicate. And so I would ask whether you know anything of this Zinzokt in your own heart, whether you have experienced a sense of hunger or yearning or craving. Uh, one person who has given an awful lot of thought to this sense of craving is a, is a, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor. Uh, and he wrote something profound about it. He said this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. F follow what he's, what he, what he's is describing here. He says, A baby feels hunger. Well, there's some, such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's some, such a thing as water. But then he says, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of the earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud, but probably the earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Do you understand what he's saying there? That if, if I have this craving, all of our other cravings have a counterpart in this world. But if there's nothing in this world that has a counterpart to this deep human longing that we have, chances are that that yearning is meant to be satisfied by something not of this world, of 
another world. I wonder if you know that yearning that C.S. Lewis is speaking of here. The sense that there's something that nothing in this world can satisfy, but which, as we saw in our uh, reading this morning, there is a God who promises that he can satisfy. I believe our passage this morning from John chapter 6 deals with this Zinzokt that we feel, this sense of yearning. But it doesn't just address the problem of it, it speaks of the solution to it, and it gets into some of the specifics of how we can satisfy the hunger that we all feel. We, we had uh, the passage read for us, but I want to walk through it just uh, section by section and really understand how God would, would address it. And, and the first way that he addresses this sense of hunger that we feel uh, is by urging us not to just work for junk food. If you feel a hunger, it's very easy for all of us to look for the quickest and the simplest, the closest thing that we can get our hands on and stuff ourselves. And uh, the warning of this passage is not to do that, but instead to seek something that satisfies. So not to just work for junk food. Let me show you, show you that in the passage here. Now the scene begins with a crowd on the hunt. We had uh, our, our worship team showing us that, that, uh, uh, that crowd this morning. The people had been hanging around. He has just fed the 5,000 on the previous day, incredible miracle, but we saw how Jesus set the disciples off into the boat. They travel, but they know that there's only one boat there, and Jesus wasn't on it. So they hang around expecting that Jesus is going to be there. Now, Jesus went off to, by himself to pray. He was, we know that he was praying until the fourth watch of the night when he went and saw the disciples, so somewhere around at least three o'clock in the morning. But by that time, the crowd has given up searching for him. They're they're packing it in for the night. We'll check back in with Jesus in the morning. Morning comes, and they realize, okay, there's still no boat there, but they can't find Jesus. And so at at this point, they turn paparazzi. They go in pursuit of him. And when some ships arrive, some boats arrive, they commandeer those boats, and those become the chase vehicles for them to go searching after Jesus. So you see there that they're hungry. Uh, uh, They're hungry for something. They're willing to do, uh, go to great lengths, really, to to satisfy their hunger. They're willing to invest time and energy. They've got the boats. They're chasing after him. They're going to great lengths to feed their hunger. But you can feel hunger, but not really know what you're hungry for. Verse 24 shows that they're seeking Jesus, but they don't seem to know why they're seeking Jesus. In in verse 25, when they finally catch up with him in Capernaum, they call him rabbi. And and that might seem like a really polite way of referring to someone who is your religious teacher. But these are the people who just on the previous day had seen him feed a crowd of probably close to 15,000 people. He's kind of moved beyond rabbi status at this point. Like, you're not just seeing him as a regular, ordinary teacher anymore. And yet they do. Then when they come out with their question, it's even more puzzling because these are the people who have just witnessed one of the most amazing miracles in human history. These are the people who have 
commission boats to travel across the boats, uh, travel across the lake to find Jesus. And what do they ask him? When they finally catch up to them, they've invested all of this time and energy and they get to him and they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? Like, who cares when he got here? Like, they, 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 they are seeking something and they know that it's in this general vicinity. They just don't know what they're there to seek, right? Do you ever have that experience? I, I think I know exactly how the, the crowd is feeling at this point because I will often have this hungry feeling and I'll wander into the kitchen and open the refrigerator and I don't know what I'm hungry for, but I, I don't even know what it is that I'm doing in the kitchen. I just know something here in this kitchen will fill this thing that I'm feeling. And so I stand with the, with the, with the refrigerator door open for too long, hoping that it'll just come to me. And I, I think that's what the, the crowd is doing here. Like, uh, Jesus, when did you get here? You know, they don't know what they're, what they're asking for. They feel a hunger, but they don't know what it is. In verse 26, they're staring at Jesus the way I can stare at an open refrigerator. And amazingly, although they don't know what they're searching for, Jesus tells them what they're searching for. He says, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. See, they're chasing after Jesus because they want more stuff. They want more bread. They want more fish. They more, want more of whatever Jesus can give them. The thing is, they don't appear to want him. They just want what they can get from him. They're not seeking after him. They don't even actually seem to see him at this point. They don't recognize him for who he really is. And so Jesus tries to help them see. In verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. See, he sees that they've been working very hard. They've just been working for the wrong things. They have been searching. They have been seeking. They have been uh, up late at night, er up early in the morning. They're working very hard, but they're working for the wrong things. They spend all their energy on material things, and he says, you need, you need spiritual things. They've spent all of their energy on temporal things. He points them to eternal things. They're looking for junk food. Jesus offers them something more rich, something more satisfying. I think that many people will do something like this, and even if they still feel the hunger and, their lo and the longing, it's with the understanding or the expectation that it's not filling me right now, but that's just because I haven't gotten far enough. Either far enough in my career or have far enough in accumulating enough money or far enough in this relationship. It's going to come, but it's just not there yet. So we live with this expectation that whatever it is that I'm chasing after will eventually fill me. And Jesus points them to uh, the reality that 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 isn't, isn't ever going to satisfy them. Some of you are Raptors fans, and some of you saw a heartbreaking, uh, a disappointing buzzer beater shot last night. LeBron James seems to be single-handedly destroying the Raptors in our current uh, series right now. But LeBron James is one of those people who, uh, he's, he's fulfilled the dreams uh, that many people have, chasing after them thinking, well, if I get to there, 
that will surely fill this, this inner uh, hunger and emptiness that I feel. Listen to what he said, though, after his second NBA championship win. And he reflected on what it was like to actually have achieved his dream. He was interviewed with you in USA Today, and he said this, what really got to me was how short of a time it lasted. The championship lasts, and then he snapped his fingers, he, the championship lasts just like that. The confetti rains, you go in the locker room, pop the champagne, you do the media, you have the parade, and then it's over. And then he repeats himself, it's over. You're looking around, and everybody's back to normal. Now, did he enjoy the parade? Was the confetti nice? Did it feel better winning than losing? Yeah, absolutely. But even LeBron James reminds us that that bread will go moldy, and it goes moldy far more quickly than anybody would ever have dreamed. To have given yourself to something from, from a young child and to have everything you needed, seemingly, to, to get to where you wanted to be, thinking that when I get there, surely that will deal with the Zinzokt. Surely that will feed, fill the hunger. That will satisfy the searching. And he said, I got there and it didn't, didn't last, didn't satisfy. It wasn't enough. I wonder whether that, re that reflects anything in your life. I wonder whether there's anything in you that is searching after something, thinking that when you get that, it's going to be enough, that this thing is going to fill you whether there is in your heart a searching after something and you're working real hard like the crowd was, you're, you're pouring yourself into it with the hope that it'll satisfy. And I wonder whether you need to hear from Scripture this morning that that's, that's not the thing that's going to fill you. That's not the thing that's going to ultimately satisfy. And the things that our world offers, although they can taste amazing for a short period of time, it's moldy bread. It goes so quickly, and it was never intended to satisfy. In fact, as C.S. Lewis says, that when you taste something wonderful and, and you get a glimpse of satisfaction, it was to point you to something else, to point you to a greater satisfaction that we can only find in Christ. So we're urged not to work for junk food. Jesus offers us something more satisfying. But he also warns us not to work for a free meal. We can actually offend the host when we offer to work for something that he offers us free of charge. Don't work for a free meal. In verse 27, we've already seen that Jesus offers us food. And it's food that endures to eternal life. He, endure, he offers us satisfaction for the hunger that we feel in our hearts. But I want you to see what the crowd does in response to his offer. They do what I've seen people do countless times whenever I have explained or tried to explain the gospel. And it just, they try to do something with Jesus' free offer. They look for ways to try and earn it. Look at verse 28. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Like, is there a, is there a certain number of times a month that I have to go to church? Will that do it? Do I have to read a certain number of chapters from the Bible 
that each week so that I can kind of get God to do what I want? Is there, is it, is it duty? Is it charity? Is it, uh, is it service that God's looking for? Do I have to be nice? Is, it, is there some, something that I can do to kind of buy a little piece of God of what I want from him in my life? What is it? Because I'm, I'm willing to do it, but I, I, I want something that I can, I can buy from him. I want to know what I can do for him to indebt him to myself. In reply, Jesus makes one of the most unique statements in all of religious history. He doesn't point to the Ten Commandments. He doesn't point to the five pillars or a noble eightfold path. He points instead to himself. And he says, what you need to do is to to have faith and to have faith in me. He says in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. He asks what every hero asks in, in every rescue story. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? It shouldn't have been a new idea to the crowd because it's all through Scripture. But they struggle to grasp it. They struggle to come to terms with it. There's something inside of the human heart that just gravitates to a transaction. Want to do transactions with God and resist the idea of relationship. We, we try and make these unspoken transactions with God all the time. We say, I'll go to church on Sunday if you fix this problem, God. We'll say, I, I will read my Bible if you fix my husband or my wife. God, I'll do family devotions if you make my kids behave the way I want them to. We, we make these transactions with God. And when we do, we realize God's not much of a divine business person. He's not really interested in the transactions. He wants a relationship, and the relationship is rooted in trust. The the, the transaction says, I'll give you a bit of this if I can buy a little bit of that. And God is never interested. Instead, he says, you come to me, and you put your life in my hands. If we're going, to, if we're going to, to walk together, it will be a walk that is based in trust. It was be, it'll be a walk where you put your faith in me, you rest in me, you walk with me. And when we do, he satisfies our hunger. He really fills us. He really satisfies that, that, that yearning that we each have deep within our heart. And so we're, we're encouraged not to work for junk food, not to work for a free meal, not to offend the, offend the host by trying to do something to get what he says, hey, I'm freely offering it. All I'm asking you to do is trust me. We can't buy Jesus with religion. He wants our trust. But finally, by faith, we're invited to feast at an eternal banquet of the soul. Jesus shows in this passage how he satisfies our hunger. And it show, he does, in so doing, he shows why often even many Christians can go through their lives hungry, even though he gives us all that we need to, satis- to, to be fully satisfied in him. By faith, we feast at an eternal banquet of the soul. Now, it's interesting to me how Jesus, resp- how, uh, 
the crowd responds to Jesus' invitation to trust. I, I asked our readers to uh, uh, read the passage this morning so you could see just how nervy they were, how, how audacious the crowd was, how, just how cheeky their responses were because the way that they interacted with Jesus, if you and I were in his position, we would have been doing this crazy in how they were responding to him. In verse 30, after hearing Jesus' invitation to believe in him, did you hear what they had the nerve to ask? They say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Like, they're, they're asking Jesus to audition for him, for them. And this, a day after, he has fed this crowd of 15,000 people. If they, knew, if they had heard anything about how he had got there. This is the one who just a, a number of hours previously has been walking on water. They say, yeah, but that was like last night. Like, what are you going to do today? What, what, else, what else can you do to, to, to convince me? Because I, I really, you know, I, I'm, I'm a really kind of a special person. I need you to, to show me, to prove it to me, to convince me that uh, five loaves and two fish, you know, big crowd, that, that was pretty good, but I'm kind of looking for something new today. Like, just... You would go nuts, right, if you were trying to, trying to respond to this crowd. I wonder if that looks anything like your attitude towards God. I wonder if you're waiting for him to prove his credentials in some way. Maybe for some of you, it's not going right back to the beginning and saying, like, uh, uh, I'm, I'm making the first step of faith, but maybe you've been making some steps of faith. Maybe there's an area of your life and you're saying, I'm not sure I'm going to trust you in this area of my life, whatever that might be. It could be your finances or your relationships, your family or your, whatever it is. I'm not sure I'm going to trust you in this area, God. I think you need to show, show me that you're trustworthy enough. I'm I wonder if there's anything in you that wants to make God prove his faithfulness to you as if, as if he hasn't already been demonstrating that faithfulness, not only throughout history, but throughout your short walk with him. Are you thinking that he ought to do more to win you over? Can you see how much he's already done? Can you see how good he has been? how faithful he has been, the miracles that he has wrought. Can you look to them and say, I don't need another miracle today, God. I trust you. I put my life in your hands because you've already shown yourself more than faithful. And, and, and frankly, I'm so unfaithful, who on earth am I to, to be asking you to perform for me? In verse 33, Jesus explains to the crowd that the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's hinting at the fact that the bread of God is a person. But the crowd doesn't seem to hear him. They don't seem to get it. Like, a, like us, they just tend to think of what they can get from Jesus. So in verse 34, they say, yeah, give us this bread always. That's what we've been saying. We want lots of bread. Like we don't, 
we, we just want to have you give us bread and do more miracles like every day. That's, that's kind of what we're here for. And that's where Jesus famously responds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The crowd wanted Jesus to give them bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread. The crowd thought there was something they could get from Jesus that would satisfy them. Jesus says, I am the one who will satisfy you. I wonder if you've gotten that lesson as, as, as a believer. I, I wonder if you've, you've, you've gotten the difference of that in your own life. Very subtle. You've, you've all made it to church today. You came to the building. But Jesus says it's not in the building. It's in him. There's so many ways that we can do stuff for God to get stuff from God with and we've completely missed the person. We can miss the relationship. We can miss the fact that Jesus Christ is the one who fills us, not any of the amazing things that we get from him. And he, he gives us many amazing things. We're thankful for them. We're, we, we, we give uh, glory to him for them. But that's not what fills us. It's none of the things that we get from his hands. It is he himself who is our fullness. He, is the, he himself is the one who satisfies us. If that's true, that changes the way we have to walk in the Christian life. We've got to stop doing business transactions with God, right? If this is true, we need to be radically personal in the way that we relate to Jesus Christ. If you're just trying to do business with God, you'll go hungry. And it's not like we don't ask him for, for things. He wants us to. But we recognize it's not in those things that we keep asking him for that we find our fullness. That's not where we find our satisfaction. It means if you're focused on something you can get from Jesus and that's all that you're focused on, you've missed the point. He's the bread. It's him we seek. And it comes in a relationship and it's a relationship that's rooted in trust. A trust that says, my life in your hands. I trust you. I follow you. I want to urge you to come to him this morning. I want to urge you of all the different things, you know, we'll, we, we, yeah, we need foyer, foyer monitors. We need uh, people to serve. We need we're encouraging you to read your Bible. Those are all good things, but I'm going to urge you this morning to do something that's more important than all of those things. I want to urge you to come to Jesus Christ. I want to urge you from wherever you are this morning. Uh, it, you could be an elder this morning, and I say it to myself as a pastor this morning. You could be um, brand new. Maybe you just walked in. doesn't matter where you are. Come to Jesus Christ. He is your fullness. And, and he satisfies the hunger of our hearts as we come to him, not for just the things that we can get for him, but he himself, he is our fullness. He is our satisfaction. Jesus promises in verse 30, 37 that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's no one in this room who can say, I'm not sure I'll make the cut. I don't know if I could kind of measure up. 
maybe Jesus is kind of looking for someone a little more worthy. He, he doesn't turn people away. He's just asking you for, to turn from your junk, and your junk food and the things we stuff ourselves with and turn in trust and give ourselves to him. Maybe some of you are thinking, I'm not sure I could do that. I, I think I could trust Jesus, but I just don't trust myself. I don't think I can make it. I, I'm not sure I could go the distance. I'm just not that kind of person. And I want, to, I want you to see, that the, see the promises that Jesus gives here. In verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives, gives me will come to me. People who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ have first been drawn by the Father. It's not all about you, so it doesn't all depend upon you. You're not alone in this. The Father is at work to draw you to himself. Then in verse 38, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you have truly repented and put your trust in Jesus Christ, it isn't all up to you, and it doesn't all rest on you. You're not alone in this. Jesus Christ has promised the Father, I'm not going to lose this one. I'm not going to let go of this one. It's not all up to you. It's not all on your shoulders. Jesus Christ is on the job, and the good shepherd doesn't lose his sheep. Finally, in verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not just for something you can get, not to do a transaction, but as a relationship, your life in his hands. If you have done that, the scriptures say that your future is secure. Your eternity is secure. Your relationship is secure. And it's secure because the good shepherd has made it secure. Jesus secures his sheep. He holds on to those who are his. We have great promises, great encouragements for any of us that are thinking, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I've got what it takes. I'm not sure that I measure up. Let's take those precious promises to God in prayer and thank him for him, what he's done. Heavenly Father, we don't want to go through life hungry. We don't want to go through life just yearning for something or stuffing ourselves with things that don't satisfy. So help us not to do that. Help us to stop wearing ourselves out for things that don't fill us. I pray, Father, for anyone here this morning who's never fully put their trust in Jesus Christ. Help them to bring their longing to Jesus. Assure them that Jesus is waiting with open arms. And Father, remind them that it's not all up to them. Our lives are secure because Jesus has made them secure. So help us to rest in him, to trust in him. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.